we are going to start a new series this morning. Um, it's interesting as uh, you know, I look back over the years and uh, actually walk through my 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 Bible. I was looking. There's not many books that we have left. I was thinking through. Um, uh, we haven't done uh, Matthew or Luke or John, so we, did, we haven't done any of those three Gospels. But after that, uh, we, we, at one some point, we've, we've done all the books in the New Testament. So uh, largely, I chose first Second uh, Timothy and probably Titus simply because those are books we haven't really dealt with yet. Um, but at the same time, I think, again, I, I don't know that there's any place really in the Bible that you can't read these days and just see contemporary examples or applications that just jump off the page. Um, so again, we will be looking at uh, Paul's letters to Timothy and to Titus. Um, and, and it's interesting to me, again, how, uh, and, and I brought this up when we went through Philemon. Uh, I, I wonder how self-conscious Paul was that this was going to be part of the canon of Scripture. The, you know, Romans I can see. I mean, he's writing to a, to a church and it's, it's very doctrinal and... and uh, or, or Galatians, or you know, that was a, or, or Ephesians, it was a circular letter that was meant to be, you know, uh, handed down or handed around to all the churches. But these, it, it always baffles me, not baffles, but it always it makes me curious to know how self-conscious was he that this letter he wrote to Timothy, or these two letters that he wrote to Timothy, were in fact holy writ, were, were, were scripture, and that would one day be part of the canon. Um, I say all that is to say that these are intensely personal letters. Again, we, we talked about this when we, when we went over Philemon. Um, this really originally was not written to you or to, to us. It was written from one pastor to another, an older pastor who was also an apostle to a younger pastor, giving very practical pastoral advice. Uh, so I've, I've, I've entitled this series, What's a Pastor to Do? Um, and now you may be asking yourself, well, why am I here? <laughs> if, this, if this was just two pastors, then why am I here? Again, the, the Bible was written to someone other than you, to someone other than me, but it was written for us. Uh, in fact, you know, 1 Corinthians, Paul says that all the things that occurred in the past were recorded for us, that we might learn as examples and so forth. But first and foremost, we need to make sure that, that we read First and Second Timothy and Titus uh, from the standpoint of one pastor to another. Um, what's a pastor to do? Um, probably six months or so ago, Jason, my son-in-law, gave me a book. It was called The Pastor of Kilsif. And by the way, Charlene, I looked. Kilsif is just west of Edinburgh. He was, uh, this was written by Ismay Burns. He, he wrote it about his father, W.H. Burns, who was a, was a pastor in Kilsif. And um, it, 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 is, it is not the kind of book that most people, most people don't read books anymore anyway, but it, it's not the kind of book that most people will read. But, but as I read it, as a, as a pastor... I was struck by how different the pastoral role has become since that time. This was in this would have been the 18th century uh, rural Scotland, 
And reading about his ministry and, and reading about the things that he did and the things really that, that pastors, all pastors or most pastors did back then, I, I, I really started looking at the, at the pastor today and I'm thinking how things have changed, how much of the role has changed. Um, when, when you look at, at and, and these, by the way, these were small rural churches and, and uh, they didn't have high tech. They didn't have worship teams. They didn't have technology. They didn't have YouTube and, and, and um, all of these platforms. Um, they, they didn't have multi-campus churches where the pastor really, almost by necessity, has to become a CEO uh, in, in, in the way that he functions. Uh, so many things have changed. Even, even, you know, and I told Jason this, I said, you know, it's hard. Sometimes it was hard to relate to the book. Um, because uh, because the culture and uh, so many things were so different than what I face and, w- and what we face. And yet, as I read First Timothy, I was I was also reminded there are certain things, certain parts, or certain requirements of being a pastor that are timeless, or should be timeless, that are not subject to culture, or geography, or time. And, and I think that is, in fact, what we see and what we will see in First Timothy. Finally, let me say that if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. In other words, um, I, will, I will do my best to, 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 to try to demonstrate why it should matter to you or how it applies to you and not just to pastors, per se. Um, so, First Timothy, chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And there is no doubt in these first two verses a tremendous amount of theology and truth that, that we could spend, uh, you know, some spend a great deal of time on, on these introductions. Uh, suffice it to say that the purpose of this is really to, in Paul's mind, certainly was to say that this is from me to Timothy. And he says Timothy is his true son in the faith. Who is this Timothy? Most of us are, are, are aware of this. Now, let me give you a quick quiz that I've given, I gave, I've given a couple people prior to this Sunday. True or false? Paul, don't, don't blurt out, just answer to yourself. Because I want you to be embarrassed. No. True or false? Paul led Timothy to the Lord. This should be on one of the cards. That's what I thought of. True or false? Paul led Timothy to the Lord. Um, if you would have, if you would have asked me that, um, I would have. I, 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 and actually, I, I did say true, uh, because he says here, "My true son in the faith." Typically, that's language used by Paul. For, for people that he has led to the Lord and, and he is discipling. And yet, if you answered true, you would be wrong, as I was wrong. Uh, turn to Acts chapter 16, first of all. It's important we get some background on Timothy. verse 1. This is Paul's second missionary journey. And then he, Paul, went on to Derbe and Lystra, where there was a what? 
a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was a Greek. Now, the contrastive but here leads us to believe that, uh, that his father was not a believer. She was a believer, but he was Greek. He was Gentile. He was, he was not a believer. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. So Paul wanted Timothy to go with him. So he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew his father was a Greek. And as they traveled through the towns, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. That was in chapter 15. Um, for them to observe. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. So Paul picks up Timothy. So he didn't lead Timothy to the Lord. Timothy was already a disciple. He was in Lystra Derby. And uh, the brothers came up to Saab and said, Hey, there's this young man named Timothy. We really highly recommend him. And, and Paul met him and, and was also impressed, obviously, and said, I, I would like for him to come with me and invites him to come with me. Turn now to 2 Timothy. So Paul did not lead Timothy to the Lord. He, had all, he already knew the Lord when Paul came into town. 2 Timothy 1, verse 3. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did, when I constantly remember you, Timothy, in my prayers night and day. Remembering your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy, clearly recalling, clearly recalling your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois, then in your mother Eunice, and that I am convinced it is in you also. And, and he goes on to talk about how from childhood he, he was raised and was taught the Holy Scriptures. He, he was no doubt brought to the Lord by his mother and or his grandmother. Uh, not Paul. Which has all kinds of lessons for us. Uh, when, when you consider the influence that a mother and a, and a grandmother can have in the lives of her son and her grandson in terms of um, faith and bringing them to faith, uh, it's not just the pastor, it's not just the apostle, but the one who had the most profound probably impact on Timothy was in fact his mother and his grandmother. This is the Timothy that Paul says is my true son in the faith, probably from the standpoint of uh, his discipling Timothy um, throughout the years. So Paul's greeting, he, uh, he says, Timothy, this is, uh, this is a letter to you um, and, and by the command, I'm, I'm an apostle by the command of God our Savior, grace, mercy, and peace to you, just a standard greeting. And then beginning in verse 3, he gives Timothy an assignment. Uh, probably up until this point, he has just simply been traveling with Paul. And now Paul begins in verse 3, he says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. So initially, whenever he wrote this letter, they were, they were in Ephesus together. And if you, if, you, if you turn to Acts, back to Acts chapter 20, verse 1, this is probably the same incident, although we're not sure. Luke, in, in his chronology of Paul's ministry, expands and, 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 and condenses uh, events and times, and so it's awfully hard sometimes to trace chronology. 
but in Acts chapter 20, Acts, well, Acts 19, remember he's in, he's in Ephesus and there's the big riot um, in Ephesus. And then in 20, he's getting ready to leave. And after the uproar was over, Paul sent for the disciples, encouraged them, and after saying goodbye, departed to go to Macedonia. And again, in First Timothy, he says, I, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. So more than likely, um, this is what he would have left Timothy with as he left Ephesus to go to Macedonia. This was, these were his marching orders. This, were, these were, this was Timothy's assignment. And so we, beginning in verse 3, we see what this assignment is or was. I urged you when I went to Macedonia to remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach different doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now, the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have deviated from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. But we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who strike their fathers or mothers. Most of our translations have kill. Um, and, and, and the word strike often, often, in many, many contexts, means strike in terms of killing, but doesn't necessarily mean killing. It could be battering, <laughs> striking their fathers and mothers. For murderers, for the sexually immoral, for homosexuals, for kidnappers, liars, perjurers, for whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Based on the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. What was Timothy's assignment? Timothy's assignment was to drain the swamp. Or you might say, um, Paul said, I want you to clean up the mess in Ephesus. We have this, we have this notion that the early church was, was pristine and their doctrine was pure. I mean, my goodness, they had the apostles, right? And... Um, and, 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 and when you take a close look at Paul's letters, these were called occasional letters. He wrote them for a specific purpose. We see that there were, the, the early church was, was, combat, was, was, um, was faced with many of the same things that we are faced with. Look again at, at, at the task that he faced. He says, I urge you, I urge you to stay there I'm leaving, but I want you to stay here. And I want you to clean up the mess that you instruct certain people not to teach different doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. Some of our translations say false doctrine, not to teach false doctrine. But this is, I don't think that's it. This is a very, this word is only found two places in the New Testament. Here, chapter 1, verse 3, and chapter 6, verse 3. It's not pseudo-didasco. It's not false teaching. It's hetero-didasco. It's different. The the Greek has two words for different. One is is a different of the same kind, which would be alos, 
Then there's a word that's different of a different kind. A different kind all completely, which is hetero. And remember when Paul said to the church in Corinth, he says, you accept a different spirit. And the different there is hetero. It was a, it was a completely different. It wasn't anything like the Holy Spirit. It was completely different and separate. So here it's not false. It's, it's not false doctrine. It's different doctrine, which is, which is interesting. If, if you look at how Paul deals with false doctrine in his other letters, you'll see, as, as we see here, he deals with false doctrine much differently than what, how he deals with this notion of a different doctrine. Um, in, in, in modern day vernacular, people call this heterodoxy. Um, not heresy, not orthodoxy, but heterodoxy. In other words, it doesn't rise to the level really of false doctrine. But it certainly is not sound doctrine. If you remember a long time ago, I did a series on false teachers and false teaching. And I said that there really is a spectrum and we need to be careful. We need to be precise. There's, you're not either a a, a, a true teacher or a false teacher. There, there's a spectrum. There, there, are, there are teachers that I would consider to be unsound teachers, but not heretics. They're, they're not preaching heresy. But their, their doctrine and theology and their teaching is unsound. I think this is kind of the category that Paul is addressing here. The, 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 these people weren't necessarily teaching things that contradicted Scripture, that were opposed to Scripture, but it wasn't Scripture. Again, look with me at the text. So you may instruct certain people not to teach different doctrine, to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. What in the world is that? We really don't know. We, we do know that, um, that there was a strain of Judaism that tended to, to be very mystical, and apparently... Um, over the years, traditions and myths had grown up. Uh, particularly, why this is, I don't know. No one really knows. There's, there's all kinds of speculations uh, around Old Testament genealogies. And it became a, 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 a point of fascination. Uh, it became a, a point of a, a great deal, apparently a great deal of focus and emphasis. It was on these, these traditions and these myths that have grown up related to the genealogies that, that certainly we see in the Old Testament and obviously, uh, subsequently, we, we, we also see in the New Testament. And, and they were, their focus and, 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 and the emphasis of their teaching were on these, these myths and, and these, uh, the, these mystical traditions about the genealogies. And that became, as, as is apparent here, became what their focus was and what their emphasis was. It wasn't necessarily saying Jesus was not God. They weren't saying uh, that Jesus was an emanation from God, as the Gnostics were saying. They, but, but, they, but their emphasis and focus was on these myths or these endless genealogies. And, and Paul says, here's, here's what that promotes. Here's what that produces. Here's what that kind of focus and emphasis and teaching promotes and produces. It produces empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. In other words, um, God has a, a plan, God has a message, He has a focus, He has an emphasis for us. And He says, this teaching is different. It, it, it's gotten off, to a, off on a side path. 
that is not according to God's plan, not according to God's word. And he said, in fact, some have deviated from these things. What things? They have deviated from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. In other words, uh, Rich isn't here this morning. How do you play golf? Or you played golf? Carol's the only one? Way to go, Carol. Um, okay. This illustration is going to mean absolutely nothing to you. Um, well, you've played golf. Why didn't you raise your hand? Okay. When, when, when you... Any, any slight deviation uh, on the club face when you strike the ball can, can be very minor here at this point. But as the ball leaves the tee, that, that slight deviation becomes a huge deviation, 200, 250, well, in some of our cases, 400 yards down the... No, I'm just teasing. Um, it, it, it produces, over time and over distance, it produces a, a, a wide deviation, a wide variation. One of the things that... Why Paul and why the, the New Testament is so... And God, obviously, is, is, so, is so concerned about minor issues is that at first, minor issues are just that. They're just minor. But over time, they become major. And this is expressed in a lot of different ways. I, I read a book, R.K. McCormick Wright, wrote a book on no place for sovereignty. And he made a statement in this book when he was talking about the sovereignty of God. And he said, the holes that we're willing to poke into the fence of the sovereignty of God the next generation will drive a Mack truck through it. Uh, others have expressed it from the standpoint of our compromises will be the next generation's convictions. Um, I, 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 I've often said, and, and I, just an observation, I think you can make a biblical argument for it. Error begets error. It, it seems like, uh, but this has like become a cliche fest, hasn't it? A camel's nose gets in the net, in the, in the tent, it, 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 eventually the whole camel is going to get in. And, and we see this with many of the teachers that, that, that formerly have been so sound and, um, and, and, and so orthodox that, that, that they start poking holes in the fence or they start pulling on a thread of their sweater. And, and, and if, if they just did that, it would be not great, but it, at that point it's a different doctrine. It's just different. It's heterodoxic. But rarely do they just stay there. They, 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 they keep going and going and going. And the further they move on, the wider the, the deviation. So at any given point in time, when those of us um, seem to be very sectarian and nitpicking, the reason we do that is because we recognize that small errors up front become huge errors in, as time goes on. Maybe not even for that generation, but for the next generation. We see this, um, we've seen this throughout history. And I think this is why Paul is so um, concerned. At this stage, it's just a different doctrine. They, they are focusing on myths and NS genealogies. And, and it really is not in line with the emphasis and the focus on God's plan, which is by faith. And he says the goal of our instruction, verse 5, is love that comes from a pure heart, a, a good conscience, your faith, that, that the, the purpose of, of God's plan and, and God's teaching is, is one of love, not controversy. 
And he said they've turned aside to fruitless discussions. Verse 7, they want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. We know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful. And in these these couplets he he names, he's trying to make a point, and the the point namely is uh, the, the, the proper use of the law. Now, if you've been coming to Wednesday night, our Wednesday night study, we, we just went through Deuteronomy. And we recognize that there are at least three different sep- distinct uses of the law. Uh, one use of the law is what, what we would call a mirror. It, it, it was to reveal sin. Uh, in fact, uh, Romans chapter 7, this is important. Romans chapter 7, uh, because we live in a day and age where many evangelicals say that we're free from the law in the sense that it's now obsolete. Uh, Andy Stanley himself has said we need to unhitch uh, uh, the church from the Old Testament um, and from the law. But we need to distinguish between the different uses of the law. Romans 7, 7 said, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would have not known, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. And the commandment that was meant for life, (coughs) excuse me, resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, just and good. And then one of the uses of the law was to reveal sin, was to really become a mirror, if you will. This is God's perfect and righteous standard as expressed in his law. And and as as a vile sinner looks at that, they recognize and they see that they are a sinner. That's one use of the law. Another use of the law was what we call ceremonial. We see this throughout the Old Testament, all the, the sacrifices and festivals. And, and why don't we do those things anymore? Well, because the New Testament clearly tells us that that use of the law has been abrogated. In other words, Christ has fulfilled. When Christ came to fulfill the law, he was talking about the, the ceremonial law. He has fulfilled all of these ceremonial laws. We don't have to sacrifice goats and bulls anymore. And never will we have to do that again because the one true Lamb of God has been sacrificed once for all. So when Paul says that that he came to fulfill the law, um, probably in most cases he's talking about fulfill the ceremonial law as well as perfectly live up to the third use, which is the moral aspect of the moral law. No one, hopefully no one would suggest that when we say we are no longer under the law that we no, that, that the Ten Commandments no longer apply to us. Um, thou shalt not steal, unless, of course, you're the U.S. government. Then it's okay. Um, and I mean that seriously. Theft. Do, do, are we saying that, that theft no longer is, we're no longer bound by that? Um, or murder? You see? So the question is, in First Timothy, he's saying what they were doing, apparently, they were taking the law and they were misapplying it <laughs> in some way, Maybe they were taking the ceremony aspect of the law and expecting believers to, to, to abide by the ceremonial aspects of the law. And he's saying, 
they don't understand the nuances. They don't understand the different uses of the law. They are misusing the law. The law is good when it's used appropriately and properly. If you want to drive a nail, you don't use a screwdriver. This is not false doctrine. They weren't, they weren't teaching things necessarily that were false. They were misapplying the law. Would you want that assignment? This is why I, I think, really, I would say, he, he says, Timothy, I want you to stay and drain the swamp. He's not saying, I want you to prevent these things from happening. What is the, what, what is the clear indication? These things were already going on and deeply entrenched in the church in Ephesus. And he's saying, I want you to clean this out. I, I want you to take care of this. I want you to, to correct this and, and, and to change what's going on. And we know that Timothy was, in other places, we know that he was a young man. Well, how might you feel if you were Timothy? And you, Paul gave you that assignment. I, I'm, 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 I'm leaving Dodge. I'm getting out of town. Timothy, I need you, to, I need you to, to clean up the messes. I want you to drain the swamp in Ephesus. How would you feel? Overwhelmed, intimidated, inadequate. He was a young man. In fact, we're going to see in 2 Timothy that he, was in, he did feel intimidated. And as a result, he was not exercising the authority that he needed to exercise in this church. So I think that verse 12 is not just random. I think Paul gives verse 12 in terms of the significance of his task as a positive example. He said, Timothy, I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry one who was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. But I received mercy because I acted out of, our, because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. Why? Let me ask you this. Why would this, be, why would this have been encouraging to Timothy? Just think about it for a minute. You have to say it out loud. Why, why would this be encouraging? He, he, here, here's one thing. I think Paul is saying, Timothy, ultimately, it's not you that's going to do it. It's the Lord. But second of all, I think he's saying, Timothy, you need to know that as you do this, as you exercise and as you complete this task, there will be positive results. And I look, at, I look at Paul's testimony and he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I'm the worst of them. Was he the worst of them? Was Paul the worst sinner that ever lived? <laughs> Was he worse than Hitler? I don't know. I always bring up Hitler. Um, well, it depends. Sometimes we, we think of the worst sinners are the, are the ones that are, that are really bad sinners. You know, that are committing rape and murder and violence. And it was interesting that Paul, what was Paul's testimony for Philippians? He said, if anybody has any reason to boast, it would be me. He said, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was highly educated. Uh, and, and I had everything going for me. I was righteous before the law. For Paul, the worst sinner of all is the one who doesn't think that they're the worst sinner of all. And it also should give us encouragement 
when we have people in our lives who are, in fact, in that first category. God can save anyone. Paul said that. He said the reason he saved me is so that he could encourage you, Timothy, that he'll save anybody. But he doesn't just give a positive example. He also gives a negative example. Again, a a tremendous source uh, of encouragement. Uh, Look with me at verse 18. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this instruction to stay in Ephesus and tell these people to knock it off, to stop teaching these different doctrines in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you so that by them you may strongly engage in battle having faith and a good conscience. We don't really know what he means by these prophecies previously made about you. We don't have any of that recorded. Presumably that may have been at the time that, that, they, he, that, that they laid hands on him and prayed over him. Maybe that was when it was. But throughout these letters to Timothy, he's going to be, keep reminding and encouraging Timothy of his authority. His authority to do what Paul has asked him to do. To strongly engage in battle. This is not going to be easy. Having faith and a good conscience. And he says, some have rejected these and have suffered the shipwreck of their faith. What a, what a, what a powerful metaphor. He names Hymenaeus and Alexander among them. Perhaps Hymenaeus and Alexander were two such teachers. And again, over time, these different teaching and focus on these different doctrines brought them to a point where their faith was shipwrecked. It's interesting to me that that that's the metaphor he uses. Were they believers? The answer is, we don't know. What do we know? We do know that those who have been truly justified by grace alone, through faith alone, will persevere, ultimately persevere in that faith. And God will preserve them in that faith. So the best we can say is, is when it says they shipwrecked their faith, it wasn't good. <laughs> and, and Paul knew something about a shipwreck because he was, if you read in Acts chapter 22, I think it is, or 27 maybe, on his way to Rome. Remember the shipwreck. It's devastating. We don't know. There's no way to know for sure. Some are very dogmatic about the fact that Alexander and Hymenaeus were false teachers and they lost their salvation or it showed that they didn't ever have their salvation to begin with. I don't think we have to go there. Um, if, if you or if others around you aren't reasonably certain that you are saved, then there's a, there's a problem. And I've always said the, the best thing you can do for a loved one is that when you die, don't make them wonder where you were or where you are. No doubt that there were those who experienced, they, they shipwrecked their faith. And Paul, in fact, said, I've delivered them to Satan. So they may be taught not to blaspheme. They had gotten to the point where Paul had to remove them from fellowship. We see the same phrase in 1 Corinthians 5.5. Remember the incident of the, the young man who was having sexual relations with his father's wife. Paul said, turn him over to Satan. The, probably the, the implication is remove them from Christian fellowship 
uh, let Satan do his work in, in the purposes to drive them back into fellowship and restoration. Tall task. A scary task for a young, new pastor. I, I, I was thinking of my son. If, if he had gone to Roswell and um, if he had faced a church like this, when we think of Ephesus, right? We think we think of you know this this magnificent city, and and we think of the, 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 the Paul's letter to Ephesus, and how you know we think of this was like the flagship of the churches, and yet when we read Paul's uh, encouragement to Timothy, they had a lot of problems. It would have been very intimidating, very difficult. What's a pastor to do? I think, first of all, we take from this, the, the pastor's job, we could say the elder's job, uh, are to be gatekeepers. We're to be doctrinal gatekeepers. And no doubt, I, I, I know for a fact that others have considered me to be very narrow-minded, very bigoted, uh, very intolerant um, when it comes to doctrine. Um, and I just simply respond by saying, that's my job. That's what God has called a pastor to do. Um, to, to different doctrine. Not false doctrine, but get off. Um, oftentimes I feel like all, I, all I'm doing is disagreeing with everybody out there. Part of that I think is, is the way God has called me and wired me. But part of that is I think, I think Paul's instruction to Timothy. Timothy, you're responsible for this. You're responsible for what is taught and what goes on in the church in Ephesus. And it may not even be false doctrine, but it's different doctrine. It, it, it is not profitable. It is not sound. He said, I want you to do all and teach all and do all that is, in, that is in consistent with sound doctrine. But number two for you, what is good for the goose is good for the gander, um, is you need to be careful about what you read and what you focus on and what your emphasis is. And I, I look at uh, all these fads that have come through the church, you know, uh, over the last 10, 15 years uh, that, that have just dried the focus. So I remember the Bible codes. Um, remember the Da Vinci Code, the movie, and um, all of these things that were just that, that, that were just off. They were unsound. And they sidetracked, and they created controversy, and they they, they didn't promote love in the body. It didn't pr- produce true godly living and, and godly uh, faith. We need to be careful. Um, and finally, for both of us, both pastors and congregations, we need to make sure we keep the main thing the main thing. What's the main thing? This is the main thing. We need to make sure that we keep this main thing the main thing. And we'll see in 2 Timothy, that's exactly what he tells Timothy. Preach the word. Um, not genealogies, not myths, um, not philosophies, um, not what Aristotle said, not what Plato said. Uh, what does God say? Um, tough task, tall task. You need to drain the swamp. The corruption... Uh, the, the misemphasis and uh, to restore Ephesus to pure doctrine again. Um, and may we always be a church that is, that is like that. We're going to make mistakes. We don't, have, we don't have the corner. I don't have the corner in all truth. 
Um, but that certainly should be our focus. Uh, keep the main thing the main thing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us the main thing, um, that we can understand it, we can read it, and we need to preach it, believe it, live it, and we need to reject different doctrines, doctrines and myths and speculations that would sidetrack us, that would um, that would, devi- would deviate from uh, what you have revealed in your word. And so, Lord, continue to give us great wisdom and discernment. Boy, do we need discernment today. Um, discernment uh, that we would not uh, buy into different doctrines, but that we would buy into, preach, live, believe your plan, which is by faith. We thank you, we love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand and join hands?